I was reading about uh, two uh, bank robbers or would-be hold-up men back in Sangus, Massachusetts. Uh, they walked into a small delicatessen in a strip mall, and they pulled out their pistols, and they threatened the, the girl behind the counter and demanded all the money in the till. And uh, the owner was there, and the owner got into the till and put all the money into a brown paper bag and set it up on the, on the counter. And nervously, they reported that uh, these uh, robbers uh, grabbed the bag and took off very quickly. And uh, as they got a safe distance away where they felt like uh, they were out of harm's way, they opened the bag, and in that brown paper bag, they found two pastrami sandwiches and a slice of dessert. Uh, they couldn't believe that in all of their nervous haste, they picked up the wrong bag off of the counter. And uh, another one of those dumb uh, bad guys kind of reports. But, you know, as we come to the whole issue of salvation, we come to the issue the Apostle Paul is facing of legalism versus grace, of uh, what does it mean to be saved? What is the gospel? It is easy to pick up the wrong bag, if you will. And uh, legalism on the outside of its bag has the writing on there, you must do, you must do to gain eternal life. And that's what the false teachers who had invaded the churches of Galatia were teaching and that they were upsetting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul was combating that. And, of course, they had been attacking him, attacking his credentials as an apostle of Jesus Christ, attacking the message of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone. And they were adding uh, the Jewish tradition, the Mosaic law to salvation, to the message of salvation, primarily the issue of circumcision, which we talked about last week. And I challenged Mike to find a hymn on circumcision. There's none, none in the record, so uh, we're not doing that today. But this was the primary issue, and to understand it in the first century mindset, especially among Jewish people who had come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior is critical to understanding that the problem is, is that people are constantly polluting the gospel of Jesus Christ, Not, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century. There are those out there who pollute the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're attacking Paul, and in this little letter of Galatians, he spends the first two chapters uh, defending his apostleship and also defending the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, or the gospel, as it's referred to here. Uh, Max Lucado gives us an, um, an assessment of legalism. I, I want to quote him, because uh, we don't want to pick up the wrong bag of salvation, if you will. We want to make sure that we know what the gospel is. Max Lucado, an author and a pastor down in Texas, and you may read his stuff, uh, he writes that a legalist believes that the supreme force behind salvation is you. If you look right, speak right, and belong to the right segment of the right group, you will be saved. The brunt of the responsibility doesn't lie within God, it lies within you. The result, the outside sparkles, the talk is good, but you look closely and you listen carefully, something is missing. What is it? And he says, Lucato says, it's joy. What is there? There's fear that you won't do enough, arrogance of the legalist, you have done enough, failure that you've made a mistake. Legalism is slow torture, suffocation of the spirit, amputation of one's dream, unquote. That comes out of his book, He Still Moves Stones. In contrast to a legalistic viewpoint of salvation, 
comes grace. The bag of grace has written on it the word faith. And the Apostle Paul is defending the faith, defending salvation by grace through faith. In John 3.36, the Apostle John writes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And if you look at the New Testament, if you do a, a survey of the New Testament over 150 times, depending how you count, simply the word believe is the, uh, the condition of salvation. And this belief is not simply believing in a historical figure. It is being fully persuaded that Jesus says and does and is who he says he is being fully persuaded of that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul writes elsewhere, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. In your passage in Galatians, as we come to chapter 2, verse 11, as we continue our study here, notice as you read your Bible, make note of not only the uh, time transitions, but also the geographical transitions. Remember in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, after the interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also, where he met uh, privately with the leadership of the church there, with Peter, with <coughs> James, uh, excuse me, and John, uh, and met with them to make sure that they were teaching the right gospel. He had already, it had already been revealed to him by Jesus Christ that salvation by grace through faith plus nothing is what we get saved by. It's not of human effort that we become Christians in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so again in chapter verse 11, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch. So there's a geographical shift here. This is Antioch of Syria. If you go up the coast from Jerusalem, up almost to the where the Mediterranean Sea turns, you will find Antioch of Syria. Do not confuse this with Antioch of Pisidia, which is over in the Iberian, or not the Iberian Peninsula, but in the Turkish Peninsula farther away, which also is mentioned in Scripture. But this Antioch was a thriving metropolis. It was on a trade route, and actually it's about 50 miles to the west of Aleppo. And I'm sure lately you've heard about Aleppo a lot in the news as it is going through terrible, terrible times. And so that is where this Antioch of Syria is. You can look in your Bible maps to pinpoint it precisely. But it says when Cephas, who is known as Peter, he's also called Cephas, and that came to Antioch, says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for prior to coming of certain men from James. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Fear of man leads us to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is that two-faced issue. There is a statue in, in, uh, in England, actually near a, uh, one of those mansions. It's immortalized. Uh, the two-faced butler is immortalized on the grounds of Ripson Hall, which is near Yorkshire, England. This two-faced butler, there's a side of it which is all smiles and politeness, but you look at the other side, and on the other side is a face that depicts nothing but anger, insolence, and impoliteness. This is a picture of hypocrisy. The sculpture represents just such a butler who once served in this uh, household. One day after receiving orders from his mistress of the household, he was all smiles and politeness, 
uh, in her presence, but a moment later he was seen uh, not looking uh, like that, but sticking out his tongue at her and making impolite gestures. Obviously, he lost his job, but then a statue was ordered to be made and erected on the grounds of this prominent house, both to shame the butler and warn any other servants that might have a tendency to imitate the behavior of the two-faced butler. We have a warning raised for us here that being two-faced is not what God calls us to be, saying one thing and doing another. And it's found here in chapter 2, this classic example of hypocrisy. In chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and notice what drives the hypocrisy. It is fear of men, fear of people that leads us to hypocrisy, not telling people what we believe, why we believe it, and living as such because we fear what they'll think of us. That is hypocrisy, failure to remember our freedom. There is a physical relapse, a spiritual relapse, if you will. And that's what the uh, Apostle Peter is example is what happens because we don't know the time element from the visit from Acts 11 when Paul and Titus and Barnabas took the famine relief money down to the church at Jerusalem and met with these leaders. But there is, it's a very short time and Cephas comes and he's eating with the Gentiles. He's sitting with them. He's eating, he's eating the pork because remember in Acts 10 and 11, Jesus shows him specifically on the rooftop in Joppa, that it is okay. You're saved by grace through faith, not by keeping the Mosaic law. And he lowers down that sheet with all what used to be unclean under the ceremonial aspect of the Mosaic law and said, eat, take it and eat. And Peter, of course, being raised as a, as a Jewish person, this was abhorrent to him. This was against everything he'd been taught in the Jewish system. So he knew better because Jesus had specifically told him that all things are clean. You don't get saved by keeping rules and regulations. So fear of others threatens our freedom in Christ. And it led, this led to two tragedies, if you notice in the scripture here. It makes us hypocrites, basically. And secondly, it takes others with us. When you get the full impact of these verses, notice that it says that... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, when these uh, people came down from Jerusalem, these Judaizers, it says they are the party of circumcision. Uh, I personally don't believe they were saved, even though they were probably part of the church at Jerusalem. That's why James is mentioned. James is a euphemism for the fact that they came from the mother church in Jerusalem. And uh, they came down and they were seeking to put bondage, put these believers in bondage in Antioch. And uh, Peter was fearful of them, which seems so strange to me. Remember, Peter was always the bold one, the bold apostle. And he withdrew himself, hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. It says the rest of the Jewish believers in the church at Antioch. Remember, Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city. Many Jewish believers, many Gentile believers eating together, fellowshipping together. But because of this entrance of the false gospel, they, the Jewish people, believers, were splitting away from them. And even Barnabas was caught up in this, which is an amazing thing because Barnabas knew better. He knew better too. Uh, Barnabas was a Jewish person, but from Cyprus, where there were a lot of Jews and a lot of Gentiles. And he grew up knowing what was going on here. Plus, he had been Paul's partner. He had gone to Jerusalem with him. He knew what the content of the gospel was. Salvation by grace through faith. So for me, there is a real 
indicator, a teaching here that the danger is, is that anybody can be led astray if we allow the fear of man to overcome us. Anybody can. If Barnabas and the apostle Peter can be led astray, anybody can. That's why it's important to review and remember what the gospel is, what the true gospel is. Secondly, in verse 14, faith in God fuels righteous confrontation. Or another way to put that, faith in God requires great courage because it will be tested. You will be asked questions. You will be confronted over your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, this is an interesting point, that he did it publicly. If you being a Jew live like the Gentiles, not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He could see Peter clearly flip-flopping on what it meant to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says they were not straightforward, it means they were not on a straight path. They were going down a crooked path is the picture there. And he is confronting Peter face-to-face publicly. And we ask the question, why would he do that? Because this is so serious, the content of the gospel is so serious, that he was willing to take the danger of being condemned by all of these Judaizers, these false teachers, as as well as with Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jewish believers there in Antioch, that he was willing to go to the cross for this one. He was willing to die for this one. It takes great courage. This confrontation was based on the doctrine of the gospel. What Peter had initiated and created in the public scandal deserved a public rebuke. There is a principle there. When our sin becomes public, in a sense, we lose control over the results or the consequences of that. And therefore, it becomes a public matter. Confrontation is based on the doctrine of church unity. Paul could see that this would divide the church into a Jewish church and a Gentile church with a great wall of legalism between them. Uh, Warren Wiersbe writes that any practice on our part that violates the scriptures and separates brother from brother or sister from sister is a denial of the unity of the body of Christ. Lessons in confrontation here for us some applications. Make sure it's face-to-face, not email, not telephone calls, face-to-face. Needs to have the facts in order, as the Apostle Paul did, focusing on the doctrine of Christ, focusing on the unity. How is this going to unify the body of Christ? Verses 15 and 16, which will basically introduce us to chapters 3 and 4, where the Apostle Paul spends time talking about the doctrine of justification. Actually, this is a a mini-summary of the book of Romans we find here. And uh, Paul brings us to this point. Faith not works results in our justification. Notice in verse uh, 15 and 16. We were Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. It's almost a tongue-in-cheek thing he's doing because Jewish people would refer to Gentiles as sinners. And uh, so he even uses that to throw that back into the face of those who are living in hypocrisy. In verse 16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified, this is the first time he's used that word in the book of Galatians. Faith, not works, results in our justification. A little review here is good. Uh, There are three tenses to salvation. 
When we think of salvation, oftentimes we only think of the first tense, like in your life when you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, believed in him for everlasting life. That was a point in history. Uh, behind. For me, it was when I was 28 years old and believed in Christ. That's when I was justified or declared righteous. That is a legal term that is used. It means I was saved from the penalty of sin because the Lord Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, his burial and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven where he intercedes and advocates for us, his righteousness, which is perfect, is imputed to our account at that point. God has imputed it because the question that remains before us is how can we as sinners, as unrighteous people, stand before a perfectly righteous God and be accepted by him? That is the question of the centuries. And the answer, of course, is only in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. What he has done for us, imputed his righteousness, given us his righteousness. Our bank account of righteousness is infinite because Jesus Christ's righteousness is infinite. So positionally, we are declared righteous. Now, we recognize that we live in sinful bodies. The body, the physical body, is not redeemed yet. And so there is this struggle going on. And this middle part, after justification, the second tense of salvation is sanctification. I've done this so many times, I should have you tell me what it is, okay? The second part is sanctification, where we are being saved from the very power of sin. And this is a progressive movement as we go through sanctification, being set apart unto God's holiness. And then the third tense of salvation is glorification, where I will be saved or we will be saved from the very presence of sin. We will enter the presence, see Christ face to face. There will be no more sin, no more tears. We will be perfected, okay? And so these three tenses of salvation, the Apostle Paul is focusing on justification because that's the argument that is going on. They are attacking the, the requirements for justification, the requirements or the conditions for justification, saying you must do something more than just believe in Jesus. You must be circumcised. You must believe in, <clears throat> in Jesus and adhere to the Mosaic law. You must believe in Jesus, and in our current day and age, you must believe in Jesus and be baptized. You must repent and then believe. You must believe and make Jesus Lord of your life. All sorts of attachments to the pure gospel that's taught in the New Testament. And so uh, faith, not works, results in our justification. Job chapter 9, Job wrestled with this. How can a man be right before God? As I said, that is the fundamental question. Habakkuk uh, 2.4 says, the righteous will live by his faith. Of course, we know that we are not righteous. We cannot, cannot attain righteousness other than in Jesus Christ. And justification is that act of God where he uh, forensically declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. It's an act. It is not a process. It is a one-time event. Even though I can't pinpoint the moment when I trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, and many of you are in that same boat, uh, I still know that that pointed act occurred at one moment, even though I don't know exactly when that was. But Jesus Christ does, and that's all that counts. Having therefore been once for all justified by faith, we have peace with God, Romans 5, 1. It's an act of God. It's not our works. It is God that justifieth, Romans 8, 33. Not our character, not our good works, 
not going to church, not uh, carrying a Bible around, not giving money. Those things don't justify us, only what Jesus Christ has done. It's a legal declaration by God that the believing sinner is righteous positionally. Before the sinner trusts in Christ, he or she stands guilty. All the world is guilty before him. Uh, But the moment that that person trusts in Christ, they are declared not guilty and can never be guilty again. Notice in verse 16, which is a core verse as he introduces this concept, that he moves in three stages. He goes from general to personal to universal. Look at verse 16 again. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. He's talking in a general fashion. He's talking about all men, in a sense, if they believe in Christ, they will be justified. Then he moves into the personal realm. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Very clear statement that there's a personal responsibility. There is a personal blessing that comes when we believe in Christ and we're not depending on any law, whether it's the Mosaic law or man-made laws, to be accepted by God. And then he moves to the universal in verse 16. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Very clear statement that there is nothing we can do to be justified. And without justification, there is no sanctification and there will be no glorification. It begins when we are saved from the very penalty of sin. It progresses as we are being saved from the power of sin and ultimately fulfilled and consummated when we are saved from the very presence of sin. When Peter separated himself from the believing Gentiles, he was denying the truth of justification by faith because you know what he was saying and the others that went with him, we Jews are different and better than the Gentiles. Yet Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and can only be saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe there's a few lessons uh, for living, uh, some applications Uh, You need to know that the Puritans would not uh, apply the Scripture to the listener. A Puritan preacher would never talk about application. They believed it was heretical to do so because they believed that the Holy Spirit was the only one who could apply the truth. I tend to lean towards their belief, but there are some times when there are universal applications which I can mention. And so today I think one of the things that uh, we can apply is the recognition that Uh, We are accountable to one another. Uh, There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We are obligated to embrace one another. We are called to because we are all part of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we do affects others. One negative person can sour a whole group, whether it's a family, a marriage, a small group Bible study, or a church fellowship. And I think if you've been in a church very long, you certainly know that that can happen. And commitment to the truth cannot be merely intellectual. It must be applicational. And that's what Wes was talking about. As we apply what we know through the principles of this book, God's Space, to our evangelistic efforts, the good news, as we want to share the good news with people, we apply what we know. It's not just an intellectual assent or belief. And our standard is marked by God's holiness. He is the one that we are set apart to. He is the one that is totally holy. Imagine, if you will, and I'll close with this, uh, imagine and think about it as a marriage, okay? 
And imagine, and I'm using uh, this from a female perspective, from a wife's perspective, because we're called the bride of Christ, remember? And uh, the question is, is are you married to Mr. Law or are you married to Mr. Grace? And I want to close with this. Uh, We all were married to Mr. Law. He was a good man in his way, but he did not understand our weaknesses. He came home every evening and asked, so how was your day? Did you do what I told you to do? Did you make the kids behave? Did you waste any time? Did you complete everything I put on your to-do list? So many demands and expectations. Uh, Let me stop there. In my own marriage, we joke about that I, because we have friends who the husband makes lists for his wife, and then he goes to work, and then comes home and checks to make sure she does the to-do list. So I always threaten the to-do list. You know, I'm going to write down a list today, (laughs) but it never flies, let me tell you that. But anyway, this, this, this metaphor goes on. As hard as we tried, we couldn't be perfect. We could never satisfy our husband, Mr. Law. We forgot things that were important to him. We let the children misbehave. We failed in other ways. It was a miserable marriage because Mr. Law always pointed out where we failed. And the worst of it was he was always right. But his remedy was always the same. Do better tomorrow. And we didn't because we couldn't. That was marriage to Mr. Law. Then Mr. Law died, and we were left a widow, but we remarried. And our new groom was Mr. Grace. Our new husband, Jesus, comes home every evening, and the house is still a mess. The children are being naughty. Dinner is burning on the stove, and we've even had other men in the house during the day. Still, he sweeps us into his arms and says, I love you because I chose you. I died for you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And our hearts melt. We don't understand such love. We expect him to despise us and reject us and humiliate us, but he treats us so well. We are so glad to belong to him now and forever, and we long to be fully pleasing to him. Being married to Mr. Law never changed us one iota, but being married to Mr. Great. Grace is changing us deep within, and it shows. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning that